0: here to read one of the resurrection gospel accounts. I'm sure you know that the four gospels differ slightly in difference of viewpoint and facts reported, which doesn't make one right and others wrong at all. It's really just like four reporters standing on four corners of an intersection and let's say an accident occurs and one man says, "Well, the lady in the gray van was on her phone not paying attention." And the other reporter across the road says, well, the guy in the blue sports car blew through the red light, and somebody else says, I think there were four kids in the back of that van, and somebody says, no, I think it was two. That's similar to what we have in the Gospels. All are giving us an accurate account, but a different perspective account on what happened that resurrection morning. Mark's account, we believe strongly, is the earliest Uh, Luke and and, uh, Matthew both show an apparent awareness of the existence of Mark and even utilization and following him almost word for word in some places. John sort of takes a course all his own. But we have the short account of just eight verses that we believe form the correct ending of Mark, and I'll comment on that in a minute. I'm reading for you Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, it was very large. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. May God bless this, his own holy word. The worst problem I find with many atheists is a problem of intellectual dishonesty. In their zeal to attack Christian faith or any kind of faith, they often follow poor logic or adopt unreasonable lines of thought that are even more full of holes than by far than what they think they attack the weaknesses in Christianity. If I have a favorite atheist of the 20th century, and I think I do, his name is Sir Bertrand Russell. Many of you will remember this multi-talented man. He was a scientist. He won Uh, the the Nobel Prize, he was a physicist, he was a philosopher, very intelligent man. And because of his intelligence, I think, Bertrand Russell was at least honest about where his rejection of God in the Bible led him. In a book called Autobiography, written in 1978, Russell said this, I quote him, No dungeon was ever constructed so dark and narrow as that built By the physics of our time. By that he meant a merely materialistic universe that was all materialism and nothing spiritual in its dimension. Today, he said, the prison imposed by our fixed science forms our whole universe, and there is darkness without, and when I die, all will be darkness within. There's no splendor to be found anywhere, no divine transcendence. Only triviality for a brief moment and then nothing. Well, that was Bertrand Russell's creed of faith. And I do applaud him for his honesty. He at least faced where his presuppositions and principles would take him and leave him without any transcendent hope. Now, there are many people who are not biblical Christians who would have a difficulty with that, and they would step back and say, well, wait a minute, can't you give me something that posits belief in another world and a a place beyond this life where everything will sort of get worked out and all the injustices will be made just and God will reward the good and punish the bad? Well, I think Bertrand Russell understood that if you were working with his theories and his principles, which were pure scientific materialism, you can't have your cake and eat it too. And it would be mere wishing that would be unsupported, that would provide eternal hope on his system and his values. Wishing for ultimate fulfillment doesn't make it to be true. Now, last week on Palm Sunday, I spoke to you about the subject of truth, a big subject to be sure, a broad subject. But one of the things I was trying to assert for you with this message coming, in my mind, as a sequel, was the idea that God has revealed to us what one theologian called true truth, truth that is founded in history, that isn't made up, it's not theoretical, it's not uh, wish fulfillment, it's historic happenings anchoring the working of God. And last time I said that it's very important that we see the cross of Christ in that light. Today it's very important that we see the resurrection of Jesus in that light, in the light of being an immovable fact that confronts our deepest fears about life and death and the future. I chose to visit Mark today. We tend to overlook Mark because it's the shortest gospel and so much of it is repeated in Matthew or Luke that it kind of gets short shrift at times. But I want to be sure that you understand something about Mark and especially zeroing in on verse 8 of chapter 16 today because if you're looking at your Bible and you're not familiar with this issue, you're saying, hmm, I've never seen this before. There's a notation there after verse 8 that says, some of the early manuscripts do not ex- include 16, 9 through 20. That's an understatement. Uh, really should have said most of the early manuscripts do not include 16:9 through 20. Indeed, verifiable, accurate New Testament scholarship firmly believes that Mark originally ended at verse 8. I join with that belief. It's not a question of conservative versus liberal. It's a question of textual evidence. The really early texts uh, end at 8. We might ask, well, where did this other part come from then? Why, did, why do we have verses 9 through 20? Well, one reason, maybe not the only, but one reason appears to be that somewhere along the way, 100 or 200 years after Mark was written, copyists who were reproducing, remember the only way to, re- to reproduce a gospel in early centuries was by hand, and copyists made mistakes. Or they added things that were their own ideas of something that should be put in. And the only way you could sort that out is to compare the earliest copies. Well, the earliest copies do not have anything beyond eight. But we think that some well-meaning monk, probably a, a sincere Christian, thought this is a strange way for a gospel to end with people trembling in astonishment, fleeing because they were afraid. That doesn't sound like the right answer, the right ending for a book of the Bible, does it? It kind of sounds like everything's up in the air and nothing's resolved, and hey, I know how I could borrow some things that are revealed in the other Gospels, tack them on, and give it a more finished look. That seems to be what took place, and it's the reason why hundreds of early, early centuries manuscripts do not have nine and following. Well, what's the point of that? The point is that I want you to see that the right ending here of the text does not make any effort to hide the fact that the resurrection of Jesus brought his people, at least immediately, into a state of trembling and being afraid and running away. Now, that was worked out as there were various appearances that aren't told here but are in the other Gospels, and and those things began to resolve themselves within hours or days after the empty tomb. But we need to face the fact that the discovery of the resurrection was a, a moment and an hour or two at least of great fear. And fear needed fact in order to resolve it. Today, as I look with you, I, I give, I give you—I like to give you hypothetical things to stretch your imagination. You'll be a couple hours at least here at church. Maybe you came earlier and you were here for Sunday school, so you left your house, let's say, at nine o'clock, and now you're here at an eleven o'clock service. And you'll take your time greeting some friends on the way out. Maybe you'll even go out to eat or something, and perhaps you'll be away from your home for three or four hours. Supposing that's the case and you drive home, turn all the familiar turns that you go to Lidditz or Lancaster or Leola or Hempfield or wherever it is you go, and you turn that last corner and come around to where you see your own driveway and you pull in, and surprise of all surprises, there's your familiar maple tree and your birch tree and your garden that you're waiting to start growing and showing some nice daffodils like we have here at the front of the church, But there's a problem. Your house isn't there. Your house is gone. There's a big hole in the yard where your basement was, where the foundation, you still see the foundation, but no house. And you sit there absolutely dumbfounded. Who moves a house in three or four hours? Where did it go? What's happened to my equity? Was my insurance going to cover this? What's going on? Did a neighbor see anything? You say, well, that's totally stupid. That's not going to happen, pastor. But if it's exaggerated, it's intentional for you to understand how dramatic was the fearful shock of these women at the tomb discovering the body of Jesus to be missing. If they thought of a lot of possibilities coming there, how are we going to get the stone out of the way? Our soldier's going to interfere with us. What's going to happen? Will we be able to to fix up the body? All the things they thought about, none of those were the problem. There was no body, just as you find no house. And what in the world are you to do? You're astonished. You're trembling. You're fearful. You're afraid. And you see, the Spirit of God, I believe, inspiring Mark to write this gospel was not at all hesitant to leave this gospel ending as it does in verse 8 with those reactions, natural reactions of human beings meeting something that they had no equipment to deal with or expect. And yet it didn't stay that way, did it? It was followed by a great fact. And the fact caused the fear and dread to be resolved, and to find a solid place to stand. God, working in his Son, it was realized before that day was over, was doing something utterly stupendous, and at the end of the day, it need not be feared. It could be trusted as the work of God. I want to talk about that great fact, then, of a bodily resurrection as fears dissolved before a tidal wave of good evidence, and it took evidence to establish the great fact of resurrection beyond a reasonable doubt. If you study your American history, you know that it was right around this time of year. In fact, April 14th of 1865, it was Good Friday. You wonder if that's stirring a a, a thought in your mind of what happened that day in Washington, D.C. Abraham Lincoln was killed in Ford's Theater. Now, if you remember the deed that happened there that a certain actor planned very carefully, it's interesting to me that John Wilkes Booth killed Lincoln with no one apparently seeing him do the actual moment of firing a shot at point-blank range into the president's head. The president didn't see it, Mary Lincoln didn't see it. And it's doubtful that the young couple that were also occupying the box with the Lincolns saw Booth shoot the president. So you might say the deed that caused all the catastrophe and all the wailing and all the disruption of our government was unseen. And it could be that maybe John Wilkes Booth didn't do it. However, we do know that the young soldier who was in the box there, an officer, wrestled with Booth. We do know that a man jumped to the stage and was recognized by many in the audience as John Wilkes Booth because he was a famous actor. We do know he shouted out in a recognizable voice, six semper tyrannis, so thus to tyrants. And all the circumstances fell into place without history does not doubt that John Wilkes Booth killed Lincoln, and yet nobody saw that that pulling of the trigger, that moment that spelled Lincoln's death. Well, you see, the resurrection is rather like that. It's a great fact. It happened, and yet no gospel gives us a selfie of Jesus rising. I'm sorry, actually, to even put it in those terms because it seems to trivialize that which is not trivial. But isn't that what we want today? You know, we… Poor movie stars and famous people have to stand still with people with their phones out in front and put on their smile and let's have a selfie. And what does that mean anyway, except I got close to a famous person? Well, the resurrection didn't have that moment captured on film. However, my point is, a great train of evidence was established from that moment on throughout that day and in all the thinking and revelation that happened that established the, what happened with such strength that who could doubt it? Well, some do. And some fly in the face of a lot of very solid evidence and say, I don't think it really happened. I'm testifying of something that was very important to me personally. I think I consciously trusted Christ. I don't think. I know I consciously trusted Christ when I was seven years old in 1956. I was at a vacation Bible school. You've heard me say this before. And I went home in my backyard and knelt down. And No teacher was with me. No pastor was with me. My parents weren't there. But I had heard that I needed Jesus as my Savior, and I asked him to be my Savior. But then for about ten years throughout my Early and mid teens, I struggled with what today doctrinally I would call my assurance. And many, many people who have told me their conversions have done exactly the same thing. I've had people say, Well, I accepted Jesus as my Savior when I was five, and then I did it 25 more times because I didn't think I did it right the first time. And we naturally doubt, we don't have assurance. And I was struggling for assurance at age 17, getting ready to go to college, trying to decide what to major in, where was my life headed, and so on. And I remember the Easter day that my pastor preached on the evidences of the resurrection. And you've heard the phrase, you know, the other shoe dropped. Well, the other shoe dropped at age 17 when I was so convinced that this resurrection Bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ was indeed true truth wrapped in the warp and woof of real history that I had a place to stand. And I wasn't going to go to college with just somebody's, my parents' or my pastor's faith standing in for me. I had my own faith that my feet were planted on a rock. Now, on previous Easter's, I have reviewed these resurrection proofs, sometimes in a great deal of detail. But I've realized just the other or last week that I haven't done that in recent years. I don't want to give you the same sermon every Easter. But somehow as I prayed about what to preach, the Lord said, people need to hear the resurrection proofs, even if they're hearing them for the 10th or 15th or 50th time. So this sermon is for our young people. The sermon is for our 17-year-olds or our 15 or 9-year-olds or 25-year-olds or the young person who is 69. And I respect that there are some of you around. I want to just very quickly go through the seven key points. There are others, lesser ones, but seven main points of facts that tell us that the resurrection is the great truth that allows everything else about Jesus Christ to fall into place. Item number one, there's no doubt that Jesus was truly dead. Now you have to start with that statement because there's, if there's the possibility that this was a less than dead man that was put in a tomb, then that opens up another whole channel of things. It could be, as some have said with their, uh, what's often labeled the swoon theory, that he merely passed out, that he lost consciousness was barely had a pulse but he was alive and he was toted to that tomb and lay there almost comatose but in the cool of the tomb he awakened and of course this to follow this theory through he would have had to get up and from the inside of the tomb move a very large rock and escape and disappear and never be heard from again hmm sounds a little improbable doesn't it Over against that is the fact that a Roman execution squad knew its business. And if you would follow what was done to Jesus, someone just told me this morning that they, last night, as a spiritual exercise, watched Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ movie from a decade ago, which I do not advise children ever watch. It's a brutal movie. The scourging of Christ in that movie is unbelievable. But they watched that and said, he certainly didn't live through that or after that and the cross. Jesus was truly dead. That really doesn't have serious dispute. Even though the Koran says he didn't die on the cross, there are Muslims who say he fled to India and lived in India. You follow that line of debate if you want. I don't think it has much merit to it, especially when you realize It was written 700 years after the cross by people who have every reason not to want Jesus to be exalted or be risen. Well, secondly, this empty tomb demands some explanation. Maybe the women went to the wrong tomb. I suppose that's a possibility. But don't you think that would have been figured out later that day? The mere emptiness of the tomb doesn't prove that he was resurrected but it certainly raises a huge question. And then we come upon a verse like John 20, verse 7, which says not only were the linen clothes that were on the body there in that tomb, but they were lying there in a very unique way as if the body had somehow dematerialized right out of those clothing. Hmm, an empty tomb, if it's the correct one, does demand an explanation. You can be sure that Joseph of Arimathea, who donated the tomb, knew his own tomb after the fact. Item three, a Roman guard ensures against foul play. This is important. A guard of several men who would rotate their shifts, probably at least six men in three eight-hour shifts a day, some sleeping, some alert. And they knew what it meant when someone said, seal that tomb, make it as sure as you can, they would certainly check it out first. They would put a seal of imperial Rome on the rock, probably a cord connecting two blobs of wax stamped with Pilate's seal, which meant you mess with this, you move, remove this seal or move this rock, you are liable to serious consequences. And they sat there on guard, under penalty of death. If they did not do their duty, that was true of Roman soldiers in almost every circumstance. They would be killed if they didn't do their duty. You couldn't come along and say, hey, guys, why don't you just skip on down the street and see a movie for an hour? We've got a little body moving to do, and you can come back and pretend nothing. No, don't be ridiculous. The Roman soldiers were no friends to the cause of Jesus or the disciples. They were better than high security cameras and motion detectors. They were better, or at least as good, as a tank and as men armed with AR 15 sitting there to wipe out anybody that messed with that tomb. Item four you have to reckon with the post resurrection appearances. More than 10 of them separately are reported in the Gospels and beyond the Gospels. Paul summarizes them at one place and and even claims that Jesus actually appeared to him as one untimely born. All of the living disciples, not Judas, but the other 11, were included in those appearances, including a Thomas who said, I won't believe it, you guys are crazy. I won't believe that unless I put my hand in his wounds. Well, you know what happened to Thomas. He put his hand in the wounds and said, my Lord and my God, And the opponents say, oh, well, mass hallucinations. Oh, really? To 500 people at once? Now, that's a little less than the number of people in this room right now. There are more than 500 in this room. Well, let's cut out 100 of you and say that the rest all had a mass hallucination and saw the same thing. Oh, really? That one's harder for me to believe than the fact that they saw what they say that they did see. Fifthly, the enemies of Christ, this is a big one, produced no convincing rebuttal. The Sanhedrin, the rulers of Israel, you remember, hated Jesus, wanted him dead. Don't you think that if the body was hidden away somewhere or they had the wrong tomb, they would figure that out almost immediately? Haul his body out put it on display in the Jerusalem square and say, those crazy Christians are saying he's alive. Here he is. Look at him. His skin is gray. You think Jesus is alive? Look at him. They would have wanted to do that with all their heart, mind, and spirit. Every effort would have been expended to finding that body and bringing it into public view. Did they do that? Well, you know the answer. And you know what We're told in Matthew 28 that the Jewish leaders spoke to the guards and said, hey, guys, we don't want you to get in trouble. Say that his disciples stole him, and we'll cover for you. You know, just let us help you out, and uh, we'll explain this away. Disciples stole him? The disciples who ran away from the Garden of Gethsemane? The disciples who, except for John, were not even at the cross? They were hiding somewhere? The disciples who were informed by the women on Easter morning, uh, he's alive, his body's gone, he must have risen, and they went running and couldn't believe it, and even John, who was closest to Jesus, didn't believe it until he looked in the tomb, and he wrote himself, I saw, and then only I believed. Hmm. The enemies of the tomb did a poor job producing a body and haven't done it to this day. Item six, you have to explain the transformed disciples. Isn't that the greatest thing of all? These men turned around. Remember, Judas was gone, but there were 11 left, and all of those 11 except John died as martyrs. John apparently died a natural death. He was the only one. Ten others died, killed, because they represented the truth of Christ. Chuck Colson has often commented he's with the Lord now, but in his lifetime. Colson used to point to the Watergate business that he was involved in when a small group of people had deep secrets surrounding President Nixon. And Colson says, look, here we were, you know, inner circle people of the President of the United States, and we couldn't hold a secret in for a matter of weeks do you really believe that ten disciples of Jesus Christ went to their deaths for a lie without one of them spilling the beans and saying, we just made all this up, ha, ha, No, it's ridiculous. You see, every alternative explanation is ridiculous. And yet skeptics will cling to them. These men died for a lie or else they died for the truth. And finally, you must reckon seventh with the worldwide growth of the Christian faith and its hope of Jesus' return. You say, well, yeah, I don't see Christianity exactly parading down Main Street with a lot of growth and strength in America today. The Christian church largely is not growing in America today. Check out the world sometime. Check out China. Many of us had an education in this in our recent missions conference where it China has official churches sanctioned by the communist government. They're called three-self churches. I won't explain what that is, but they're churches that the government says, good, you exist. You preach a carefully controlled, diluted version of the gospel that doesn't believe anything supernatural. And by the way, we don't want any young people in your services. People under 18 can't come. And you just preach what we allow you to preach. And And you can be right out there in the open. Those churches are there, but they're languishing. And guess what? The underground churches that are not officially sanctioned, that preach the gospel of Christ crucified and risen, have their pastors thrown in jail in many cases. Many of their members persecuted. The gentleman who filled our pulpit the first Sunday of March, if he landed in Beijing, would be arrested and probably jailed for a long period of time without a trial. Because... He's a witness for the truth of Jesus Christ and the churches that he represents are growing by leaps and bounds despite all efforts of the communist Chinese government. Christian growth is not stagnant, ladies and gentlemen. You just have to go where it's happening. You have to go to Africa where they can't even find and train pastors fast enough in many places, many countries to help and guide and preach to the congregations that are springing up as people respond to the truth of Christ. The power of the testimony of the resurrection is what does that. And so I go back to my 17-year-old experience as I headed off to college and to reading the ideas of the world, reading people like Bertrand Russell who attacked Christianity and I could have fallen aside perhaps like some do. Some students encounter these smart-aleck professors who pretend Christianity is foolishness. and Oh, well, a professor has a Ph.D. from Yale. He must know what he's talking about. Well, quite often he doesn't. Quite often he's like Bertrand Russell, but unwilling to admit the weakness of his system as Russell was. Sir Norman Anderson was another man knighted by the British government. He was an expert on legal evidence... And he taught law classes at the University of London and later at Princeton and Harvard. This man, who is regarded of a, as a legal author of textbooks, at least for a generation ago, Norman Anderson wrote this. He said, quote, The empty tomb of Jesus forms a veritable rock on which all rational counterarguments to his having risen literally are dashed in ruins. There's an honest man who knows about evidence. You can stand on the evidence of the resurrection. You may feel somewhat flummoxed at some time or other in a discussion with somebody who can talk well, and you say, boy, uh, that guy just sort of eroded my confidence in my faith. Well, do a little research, do a little reading. Get the book that's still around, an excellent book that's been around for a generation called Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell fine book. It's accessible easily to lay readers. When he goes into much more detail about the evidence of the cross and the resurrection as God's true truth in time and space history. And I want to say to you young people, you can plant your feet on this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the bodily resurrection, not not the memory of him surviving, not the spiritual vision of him or something like that. The bodily flesh and blood and yet different resurrection. He was, a, he was able to be touched. He ate food, but yet he was of another form, a glorified form. And because Jesus rose, ladies and gentlemen, the shouted exaltation you gave forth in your hymns earlier this morning is justified. He lives today. He lives and rules, not just in distant heaven somewhere or in some distant date in history when he's going to return in glory, which he is, but he lives in his people. In the power of his Holy Spirit, the living Jesus, is our cause of celebration. Don't ever pull back at all. You owe no one an apology for believing that. And I hope young people and parents and grandparents, if you grandparents are older than I am, you've heard this 52 times before, I hope it does you good to hear it again. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved, and you stand on God's platform, God's rock, of truth that no man can attack, and no man can drive you from it. Amen. Thanks be to God. Father, what a great day it is to be able to come out with the light of dawn not yet fully upon our land, and stand on a hilltop with grave markers of friends that we know and have been in our fellowship around us. Maybe with questions dancing in our heads as we think, where is that one now? I remember her. She was a wonderful person. Now she's gone. Father, thank you that they're not gone, that they're in a better place than we are, that they have already had the down payment of their reward as their souls gaze upon the living God. Thank you for Easter. Thank you for the joy that is not just wish fulfillment, but it's true truth, the truth of history. We praise your glorious name for what you did in your son Jesus. Amen.